Ephesians, and we've been doing a series on discipleship. In the last three weeks, we specifically have talked about discipleship in the family, and I've uh, had some comments. Uh, some of the women have asked me if I could clarify a few things, because the husbands are thinking that, that, uh, that, that it's all about the wife minding the husband. <laughs> amen, sis. <laughs> I get, hear that amen from the husbands. Uh, now, you know, this really is a, a real challenging word. Um, and remember, I started this out three weeks ago, challenging men. Uh, guys, uh, it's time for us to step up. Amen. And, you know, our wives should never look at us in a way in which they somehow uh, read through our leadership or our place in the family that all it's about is a woman minding a man, because that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. And so today, we're going to talk about uh, the spirit and submission. Amen? And we're going to, we're going to kind of, in a, in a sense, uh, not go backwards in our text, but we're going to look at uh, kind of a big picture issue. We've looked at some very specific things in the Scripture when... Paul says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And when he says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Man, what woman would not be willingly uh, submitted to a husband who would love her the way Christ would love the church? And Christ doesn't stand over us and lord over us and demand of us and and punish us or, or manipulate us. He doesn't do that. Uh, He loves us, and His love conquers our resistance. His love does those things. And so, men, there's a great responsibility that's upon us to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. Last week, we, we talked about children obeying your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And, and I didn't skip it um, on purpose, but in Ephesians chapter 6, when we uh, get past the the part where it says, children, obey your parents. And it's, then he co- goes back to the fathers, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, or 3 and 4. And he, and he says, fathers, don't provoke your children uh, to wrath. And he puts the responsibility back on the fathers so that the children are not just obeying out of obligation because there's a cruel father standing over them, making them obey, but... But the, the children are raised in the nurture of the Lord. They're nurtured. They're trained. They're disciplined. Discipline is not punishment. And if discipline to you is punishment, parents, then you totally and completely misunderstand what discipline is. The Bible says in Hebrews that God disciplines those whom He loves. That if we're legitimate children of God, He disciplines us because He loves us. That, that discipline doesn't mean punishment. It means it trains us. He trains us and He guides us and He leads us in the the paths of righteousness. And so children, obey your parents. But parents, fathers, train your children from the time they're small and, and help them to understand that it is their joy. It is their greatest joy and their greatest fulfillment to be able to honor God by honoring their parents. That this isn't some cruel obligation that we're called to, but this is our greatest joy. Amen? 
And then he goes on and he says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters. That word bond servant is a word that means the lowest form of slavery. Slavery was common in Paul's day. Do you know that there are more slaves today in the world than there ever was in, in the in history of humanity? Now, we don't think of that living in America. But the reality, slavery has not gone away. And, and so we don't understand the concept of slavery here in America, but, but we do understand the concept of employer and employee, don't we? And this absolutely applies to our attitude whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in the family, or, or wherever, in our relationships, what is the attitude that we carry in our relationships? Employer, how do you, or employee, how do you look at your employer? Or employer, how do you look at your employees? And so this speaks to the, the very level that we live on, the way we, the way we live and the way we relate to one another. And so this brings me to what we're going to talk about today, which is the spirit and submission. So let's read, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5, let's begin in verse 17, and we're going to read through verses 21. Ephesians 5, 17. It says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So Paul says, I want you to understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things, that's a challenge, right? To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. So, we're talking today, and we're still continuing to talk about discipleship, but specifically, we're talking about submission in the Spirit of God. And, and Paul introduces the principle of submission with the admonition of being filled with the Spirit. So he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, singing from your heart, giving thanks, and submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. So he introduces this principle of submission with the admonition of being filled with the Spirit, and he, then he takes us to submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. And then he goes very specifically, wives, husband, children... Fathers, bondservants, masters, he tells us, he shows us what submission looks like in our lives, right? Because these things don't really matter if they're just principles, if they're just theories that are floating around out there, but how does this become reality in my life? And Paul brings it right down to reality. He says, this is the reality of it in your life. And so why do, why do people resist the principle of submission? Or at least why does submission, that very word, I mean, if we were, I think if we were brutally honest today, every time I say the word submission, there's something in you that, that makes you feel uncomfortable. If you don't resist it, what is it that makes submission 
what makes it uncomfortable for us when we speak in these terms? And I think what makes it uncomfortable for us is because the principle of submission speaks of me not being in control. Well, wives, why do you have a problem being submissive to your husbands? Because you've got a problem with your husband being in control. And you know what? <laughs> you might have a good reason to have a problem with your husband being in control. So you know what needs to happen? That husband needs to have some men in his life who will come around him, come alongside of him, and help him mature in the Lord so that his wife won't have a problem with his proper role in the home, in the family. But see, we live in a day in a culture where that is like taboo. I mean, this whole sermon topic is like taboo. Because we just don't do that. That's old school. Man, you got to catch up. We're living in the 21st century. We don't talk about submission, and we don't talk about discipline, and we don't talk about these things. Man, we're free. We're Americans. I can do what I want, go where I want, say what I want, be what I want. I'm free. Yeah? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable, the Scripture says. And, and we don't really understand what true freedom is. See, we're free in Christ. If we understood what true freedom was, we wouldn't have a problem with these biblical truths because God has given us these truths so that we can truly be free. Amen? So out of the fallen nature of man comes the fear of not being in control. Do you realize that's really where that comes from? That is part of our fallen nature. In the beginning, you know what Adam and Eve had a problem with? Well, God told me not to, but you know, after studying this fruit on this tree... I really think that God doesn't really know what he's talking about, so I'm not really going to let God be in control. I'm going to go ahead and make my own decision here. Well, at the point we make our own decision and we go against what the word of the Lord is, guess who? Guess what? We've just said, God is no longer in control. I'm going to take control of this situation. God says, don't eat it. I'm going to eat it anyway. Well, Adam and Eve took control of the situation, didn't they? And, and guess what happened? We know what happened, right? And so it's out of the fallen nature of man that comes the fear of not being in control. This is why the world fears death, because they, they have little or no knowledge of the author of life. God is the author of life. We fear the unknown because what's unknown to me is, is not really in my control. I don't know how to control what I don't know. If I don't know it, if I don't know what's out there, how am I going to know how to control it? So the unknown speaks of totally being out of control. If I don't know what's on the other side of that door, in the dark there, then I don't have a clue how to deal with it. So it creates fear in us. But, but we have this illusion of thinking that as long as we think we're in control, we think we know how to deal with things, we think we can handle eating the forbidden fruit. We think we can handle being in control. We think we can take a place, a position that God says is not rightfully mine. But I'm going to go ahead and do it anyways because I don't think God really knows what he's talking about. Now, in most cases it applies, but you know, there's exceptions to every rule. No. That is fear that comes from man's fallen nature. 
So men resist submission because submission acknowledges that there is another over us. Submission to God means that ultimately God is in control. And if God's in control, that means I'm not. Now, the question is, do we have a problem with that? Now, we would all say, no, Pastor Jeff, we don't have a problem with that. Because you're sitting in church listening to a pastor give a sermon, and you've got your Bible or a Bible in your lap, and you know what the Bible says, so in your mind you're going to say, no, I don't have a problem with that. But the reality is, we don't even have to go look out in the world. Because the world is the world. The world does what they do. Because they are the world. So let's not look at the world. Let's just look at the church. And let's really ask ourselves, within the church, does the church have a problem with God being in control? And the answer is, yeah. There's too many who call themselves the church that really have a problem with God being in control. Amen. So God really doesn't know what he was talking about he, when he wrote the Scripture or when he inspired the Scripture. Or maybe he didn't even inspire the Scripture, so we're just going to change it. We're going to change the rules. Well, that which the Bible calls sin, well, it's really not sin anymore. And that which the Bible says is, not, is unacceptable, well, it's really not unacceptable anymore. You know, things have changed. Mm-hmm. So... We can't be submitted to God if we're not willing to submit to one another. And we can't, we can't, certainly can't be submitted to God if we're not willing to submit to the Scripture, right? And so submission is a principle that God outlines in the Scripture, and He also reveals this principle through the nature and character of Christ. So Christ, when He walked this earth, first and foremost, He was totally and completely submitted to the will of the Father. He submitted Himself to things that that really at first glance He should not have had to submit Himself to. I mean, we, we, Peter, Peter recognized this. Peter's like, God forbid, Lord Jesus, that you should die. I'm not going to let that happen to you. They're not going to take you. What did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, in a worldly sense, in a natural sense, it made, it made total sense to Peter that this wasn't going to happen to Jesus because Jesus should not be submitted to that. But Jesus said, no, no, Peter, you don't understand. It is right It is righteous for me to be submitted to all things that my Father has willed, whether it makes sense to you or not, whether it seems like it's going to work out best or not. See, what happens a lot of times, I think, because I do this, I can look at a situation and I can analyze it in my mind based on natural things, and I say, nah, that's that that doesn't make sense. We can't do that. But yet, the word of God may be very clear on something. It's like, but but wait, Lord, that just doesn't seem like if I follow that scriptural principle, you you realize what's going to happen, Lord. Can't we make an exception this time? Mm-mm. 
God, listen, church, God always knows best. He always knows best. I mean, it looked like the end of the whole plan. Here are the disciples. They've spent three and a half years with Jesus. And all their hopes and dreams died on a cross. Died the most cruel, the most shameful death possible. And in their mind, it really was over. But it wasn't really over, was it? Thank God that Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. Even the death on a cross. Because he could see and he knew what no one else could see and what no one else could know. If that was true then, don't you think it's true today? That if we will trust the Scripture, God knows what He's doing. God knows what He recorded. God knows what He inspired to be written. God knows. Let's trust what the Scripture says. So what does discipleship have to do with submission? Or what does submission have to do with being filled with the Spirit? And the reality is these two things are seamlessly linked in Christ. So to be filled with the Spirit is to be fully submitted to the will of the Spirit as revealed to us in Christ and in His Word. So let's go back to a previous chapter here. Let's, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Now we see that Paul begins this principle of submission with the command to be filled with the Spirit. So we need to understand what what this means. And to understand what it means, we understand what, what he contrasts being filled with the Spirit. He contrasts being filled with the Spirit with something here in this letter. Now remember, this is a letter. This is a complete body of work. So we can't just pull one thing out and and create a theology and a doctrine around it because it's in the Bible. We need to understand what Paul is talking about in the context of the Scripture here. And so we need to go back to something previously that he commanded in this letter, found in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. Let's begin in verse 29, Ephesians 4, 29. And Paul says... I mean, we could back up even farther, but for time's sake, let's just start here. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And, that that little word and there ties the verse I'm fixing to read to you. It ties verse 30 to verse 29. And, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, takes us right into chapter 5. Now, we began the study three weeks ago at chapter 5. And chapter 5 begins with a therefore. And what I always tell you, when you see a therefore in the Scripture, you need to understand what it's there for, right? 
And so what Paul is telling them here in verse 4, he leads right into to chapter 5. And ultimately he comes to our text here where he says, being filled with the Spirit. And ultimately he says, what does that look like? It looks like you submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Wives, here, how, here is how you submit. Husbands, here is how you submit. Children, here is how you submit. Bond servants, here is how you submit. Masters, this is how you submit. Parents, fathers, mothers, this is how you submit. And it all started back here. But before he gave us the command to be being filled with the Spirit, you know what he commanded us? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And there is a direct contrast here between not grieving the Holy Spirit of God and being filled with the Spirit. Now, we, we, we usually miss that because we only want to concentrate on the theologies that we build around these phrases instead of really looking at the complete context of what Paul is talking about here. And so when we hear the phrase, filled with the Spirit, we may immediately imagine ourselves moving in the gifts of the Spirit. Maybe we're, we're healing someone or casting a devil out or performing a miracle. And true, God, by His Spirit, can work through us to do any or all of those things. But I want you to see something that Paul is being very specific here in what he is presenting in the Scripture. And we need to stick to the text here in the context of the text, to understand what Paul is teaching us about the Spirit of God and submission. Because being filled with the Spirit and being submitted to the Spirit are not two separate issues or two separate truths. So for sure, the Spirit can move through people to do those things, but we are commanded to not grieve the Holy Spirit. And Paul makes very clear in his teaching in these verses in regard to the communication and fellowship that we have with one another. This is what he's dealing with relationships here. The principle of submission goes to the very heart of our relationships with one another. The command to not grieve the Spirit goes to the very heart of our relationships with one another. We're going to see, not based on what Pastor Jeff says, but based on what the Apostle Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has recorded for us what being filled with the Spirit, what He teaches us in this letter, what it means. And so we're commanded to not grieve the Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. So the essence of discipleship is our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. Remember, this is our, this is our theme. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about discipleship. Discipleship is not just a class I take on Sunday or Saturday or Monday. Discipleship is, fathers, how you conduct your households. How you love your wives. And how they, in kind, return that love and respect to you based on how you lead them as Christ leads the church. Discipleship is about whether your children are obedient or not because you have raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Or have you just with an iron fist just beat them into submission and they're just waiting for the day when they're free from you? Johnny Cash covered a song called Rusty Cage. And he says, one day I'm going to break out of this rusty cage and I'm going to be gone. How many kids 
are at home waiting to break out of their rusty cage and be done with their family because their parents did not really raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They didn't teach them what the joy of the Lord is. They only taught them, boy, you better do what I tell you to do or I'm going to give you more of what you just got. That's not discipleship. That's not raising your children. That's not what the Bible is talking about. It's not. And so the essence of discipleship is about our relationships with one another and with God. This is why the whole book of 1 John is about if you don't love your brother, the love of God is not in you. Call yourself a Christian all day long, but if you have hate in your heart towards your brother, you are not in Christ. The love of God is not in you. Discipleship goes to the very heart of relationship. And if we're grieving the Holy Spirit, then we are not being filled with the Spirit. So let's look at how Paul describes grieving the Spirit. And we'll contrast that with being filled with the Spirit. So let's look at our verses here in in, in chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. So pay attention to the words that Paul uses. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. So corrupt. what are corrupt words? Corrupt words, that word corrupt means rotten and worthless. In other words, let no rotten or worthless word proceed out of your mouth. Because when rotten and worthless words proceed from our mouth, it grieves the Spirit. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification... So what that means is don't let words come out of your mouth that fail to edify or words that, that fail to impart grace to the hearer because when we speak words that fail to edify or fail to impart grace, guess what we're doing? We're grieving the Holy Spirit. I want you to see that all of these things Paul commands in these scriptures They all relate to how we relate to one another. He goes on and he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, that word bitterness means poison. Your poison actions, your poison attitudes. Have you ever had a poison attitude? I mean, can you for all practical purposes, be standing there with the biggest smile on your face. But inside, you got a poison attitude. You know what? That person that you're smiling at, the person you've got that face on for, might not know the poison that's inside of you, but guess who does? God knows. And when we have poison attitudes and poison actions, you know who we're grieving? We're grieving the Holy Spirit. So he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath grieves the Holy Spirit. Anger grieves the Holy Spirit. Clamor, this word clamor clamor means disorderly agitation or, or tumult. That grieves the Holy Spirit. And evil speaking, blasphemous, vilifying accusations. You ever been trying to have a a logical conversation with somebody? But there's no logic in what 
they're trying to say. And so what do they resort to? They resort to personal attack and name-calling because they don't have anything else to resort to. This is what the Pharisees did to Jesus. They could not refute him with the Scriptures, so they said, well, you're a devil. Well, uh, you, you're using demons. No. When we speak evil, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Malice, evil, wicked, bad behavior and attitudes. I mean, Paul just uses this word malice, which is kind of like a catch-all. Anything bad, anything evil, anything like that, he said, when you operate out of that, when you speak out of that, when you relate out of that, he said, you're grieving the Spirit. Put away from you all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, which means unkindness grieves the Spirit. Be tender-hearted, which means hard-heartedness grieves the Spirit. Forgiving one another, which means not forgiving one another, grieves the Spirit. But Pastor Jeff, you don't know what they did to me. It doesn't matter. Do you know what you did to Jesus? Do you know what your sin did to Jesus? Are you going to compare what your sin did to Jesus to what another human being did to you? There is no comparison. This is why we have absolutely no excuse to live and continue to walk in unforgiveness. That's why we're commanded to forgive. As How are we commanded to forgive? Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. When we don't forgive, we grieve the Spirit. So all of these things, corrupt words... Words that fail to edify and impart grace, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, malice, unkindness, hard-heartedness, unforgiveness. All of these things grieve the Spirit and they all go to the point of what? The point of our relationships with one another. You know, I've preached and, and taught so much about community in the body of Christ. Why? Because we cannot escape it from the Word of God. Because we're called a family on purpose. We're called a body on purpose. We're called members of His bone and of His flesh on purpose because the Scripture is so clear in how we are connected to one another in Christ and we cannot just flippantly disregard that. We can't. Well, we can, but it's not right if we do, right? So grieving the Spirit specifically relates to the unity and love in and among the believers. Now, now I want you to think for a moment, lest your mind go somewhere, because we need balance in all things, right? So let's think about Jesus. Does that mean that Jesus grieved the Spirit when He offended people? Did Jesus ever offend people? I mean, he was called the rock of offense, the stumbling, the, the stumbling stone, the rock of offense. He offended people, right? Did Jesus grieve the Spirit when he offended people? When Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, I bet he, I, I'm sure that hurt their feelings, probably hurt their flesh too when he beat them with whips. Did he grieve the Spirit when he drove out the money changers? 
How about when he spoke the truth to the degree that it drove men to kill him? Did he grieve the Spirit? No, he didn't. So what's the difference? Well, here's three little things I think that are important for us to remember, okay? To keep in mind. Not as a justification to speak words that may offend or provoke, but to remind us to be true to his word at all costs. See, even though Jesus knew that his words would drive men to kill him, he didn't compromise. He said, this is what I came for. And the truth was more important than his very life. And the truth depended upon his very life. So here's three things. The truth will often offend people. We need to, we need to as the church, we need to settle that in our hearts and minds. The truth will often offend people. And the church is not called to go around and make God acceptable to sinners. We are called to preach a gospel that will cause sinners to become acceptable to God. And we have got it backwards, people. And we need to get back to the truth. And we need to understand that the truth will offend people. Edification is not always without provocation. In our attempt to preach and teach and to edify and impart grace to the hearer, you know what? People may get provoked if they love their sin more than they're willing to repent of it. Jesus said men remain in darkness. Why? Because they love the darkness more than they love the light. Did that stop Jesus from speaking words that were designed to edify and impart grace to the hearer? No, it did not. It actually provoked men to kill him. And and the third thing is this. The words that bring grace will also bring correction. So that's a fact. So when Paul says don't grieve the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean that we're never going to hurt anyone's feelings or we're never going to provoke anyone or we're never going to challenge anyone or we're never going to correct anyone. See, this is the world we live in today. Don't, don't say that because it may. That's not the point. The Word of God will provoke people. It will challenge people. It's supposed to. It may upset some people who love their sin more than they love the truth. It may. So when we speak the truth and people get offended or in an attempt to edify people, they get provoked, or when imparting grace, people feel conviction, the conviction of correction, we must know that we have not grieved the spirit, though we may grieve the person. So the above is true as long as we have spoken or acted free of what? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil, malice. See, it's not my job to get up here and be angry and use this pulpit to get back at you. That grieves the Holy Spirit. It's not your place to take the Scripture and go to that person and just whack them over the head with the Bible. See see there? Told you. You just grieve the Holy Spirit when you do that. So the first thing that we need to do is really examine our heart. Whether we grieve the Spirit begins with our heart motivation. But I'm going to tell you what, just as quick as we can grieve the Spirit by 
using the Scripture to beat people over the head with or to slice and dice them with a sword will grieve the Spirit just as quick if we compromise the truth because we're afraid to offend them. That is just as grieving and actually just as, if not more, harmful. If there is no standard of truth, then how will men know? And if the church is not going to be that living organism in the earth that will stand up and declare truth, then who will? Because truth has been entrusted to us. We can't depend on the world to preach truth. They don't know truth. That's why they're called the world. But we have been given the truth. And it is our responsibility to make known that truth. And when we do not, we grieve the Spirit. And when we use the truth incorrectly, we can also grieve the Spirit. Well, what about when we're the ones receiving the evil speaking or the poison and the malice from others? How, how do we react to that? How we react to that can grieve the Spirit. If you react in kind by calling names back or getting mad... I just heard a wonderful testimony this morning of someone who for years took verbal abuse and name-calling and, and implied things, but they never reacted in kind. And finally, finally, it's not that the person that was doing that didn't know what they were doing, but it's, it, it came to a point where finally God was able to use the fact that that person did not grieve the Spirit by reacting in kind, but they continue to show the love and the forgiveness of God. And by consistently showing the love and the forgiveness of God, God broke through that person. And that person apologized and repented for their bad attitude over, over the course of years. So let's talk about being filled with the Spirit. We just saw what grieving the Spirit looks like, right? This is, Paul says, this grieves the Spirit. So, so he tells us first, he commands us first, and, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And, and that whole discourse leads right into chapter 5, brings us right over here to verse 17. Don't be unwise, but, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And look how he describes being filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. And we need to understand something about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, God is not something that we possess. The Spirit of God is what possesses us. God didn't give me the Spirit of God like a loaded gun to go around and kill the devil with. The Spirit of God is the person of God that has taken possession of me. Who's in control here? I got news for you. It's not you, it's God. 
But we often treat the Spirit of God as though it's something we possess to use as we want to, to wield as we want to. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Spirit has come and the Spirit has taken possession of us. We belong to God, Paul says. We don't even belong to ourselves anymore. We've been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if we understand the proper context of our relationship to the Spirit of God, that it's not something we possess, but it's something that possesses us, we'll understand much more clearly what Paul is teaching us here. So in Christ, we are always to be under the Spirit's control. So being filled with the Spirit is to be under the control of the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit possesses me. It's what, it's what has taken hold of me. By the Spirit of God, I've been brought up into Christ, and I am growing up into Him in all things. Ephesians 4. So, he says, being filled with the Spirit. Doing what? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So, being filled with the Spirit determines how we speak to one another. And how we speak to one another, we just... We just read in Ephesians 4, how we speak to one another determines whether we're grieving the Spirit or not. So if I speak to you with corrupt words, guess what? I'm grieving the Spirit. So I'm commanded to not grieve the Spirit. In fact, I'm commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And if I'm filled with the Spirit, how am I going to speak to you? Not with corrupt words, but in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do you think that was just an accident that Paul put those contrasts in there? Or do you think it was very purposeful that he says, here's what grieves the Spirit, corrupt words. Here's what being filled with the Spirit is, speaking with these words, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Where is the, where is the source, the root of those words? The source and the root of those words is out of this book called the Scripture. Paul says, if you want to know how to speak, the Scripture will teach you how to speak. Let your speech come from this root, from this foundation right here. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why? Because the way we speak to one another determines whether we are grieving the Spirit or whether we are filled with the Spirit. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Singing and making melody where? In your heart. What's in your heart? Are you standing there with a big smile on your face, but you got poison in your heart? You got unforgiveness? You got anger and wrath? You might fool everyone around you, but you're not fooling God. And you're grieving the Spirit of God. So when I'm filled with the Spirit, that should determine what's in and what's coming out of our heart. From the abundance of the heart, what speaks? The mouth speaks. So what's in my heart determines whether I'm filled with or whether I'm grieving the Spirit. Giving thanks always for all things. That's a toughie. He doesn't say giving thanks most times for most things. He says giving thanks always for all things. That's impossible to do apart from the Spirit of God. I'm just going to tell you right now. 
you've lived any length of time on this earth, you know that that is impossible to do apart from the Spirit of God. Remember, we said this a couple of weeks ago. I can't be thankful and covet at the same time. If I'm coveting, then I'm not thankful. I'm not thankful for what I have. I am coveting what I don't have. Thankfulness. What's in your heart? What's the attitude of your life? That determines whether you're filled with the Spirit or whether you're grieving the Spirit. Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. He says this to everyone before he specifically addresses wives, husbands, fathers, children, bondservants, masters. What is the principle of submission? The principle is this, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. So husbands for sure want their wives to submit, right? But husband, are you willing to be submitted? And first and foremost, do we understand that we are all to be submitted under the Lord? So our willingness to submit to one another determines whether we're grieving the Spirit or whether we are indeed filled with the Spirit. Our relationships from inside out, read Ephesians 5 and 6, those two chapters. They deal with relationships, how we relate to one another. Really, the whole book does. 4, 5, and 6 especially deal with this. Now, our relationships from the inside out will determine whether we are grieving the Spirit or whether we are indeed filled with with the Spirit. So from Paul's teaching on what it means to grieve the Spirit and what it means to be filled with the Spirit, I think, I think it's very clear that we cannot be being filled with the Spirit while at the same time grieving the Spirit. This is Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He does not want them to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. What did he not want them to be ignorant about? He didn't want them to be ignorant and think that the fact they had gifts operating meant that they were filled with the Spirit because he said, no, you're ignorant. The fact that you have gifts operating that has nothing to do with whether you're filled with the Spirit because you've got gifts operating but you don't have any love. There are corrupt words coming out of your mouth. There's clamor, there's agitation, there's division, there's pride, there's arrogance, there's parading of self all around. You're not filled with the Spirit. You are very deficient. That's why he goes into chapter 13, he says, you can do all of those things and more, but if you don't have love, it means nothing. Nothing. So when we're not submitted to the Spirit's control, that's when the wrong words, the wrong speech, the wrong attitude of the heart is manifest in us. And we can't claim one and be operating in the other. So when we find ourselves doing those things that grieve the Spirit of God, we're not submitted to the Spirit of God, so we're not filled with the Spirit. Therefore, the Scripture commands, don't grieve the Spirit, but indeed be filled with the Spirit.
In other words, stop speaking corrupt words. Stop being agitated. Stop those things and speak to one another in the right way. Hold in your heart the right attitude and and let it be a song, a melody to the Lord. Be thankful instead of covetous. Be thankful in all things. Give thanks to God. Submit to one another. Don't try to get over on one another. Don't try to jockey for position. So unity, unity is the hallmark of true spiritual discipleship. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 at the beginning of the chapter. Now we've worked our way back all the way to Ephesians 4 chapter 1. Let's read the first six verses together. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now we're going backwards here. But I want you to see, as we go backward, and we began with this challenge to men to rise up, to stand up in your home. Challenge also to to wives. Challenge to parents. Challenge to children. But we've worked backwards and we see what Paul, do you you see what Paul is saying here to the church? I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And if unity is the hallmark of the Spirit, like love, it is also the hallmark of discipleship. We cannot claim to be true disciples and to not truly be in unity. Just like I can't claim to be a true child of God and hate you. The love of God is not in me if I have hatred towards you. Who says? The Bible says. So unity, now listen, unity is not everyone agreeing together. It is everyone together in spite of not agreeing. Unity is no problem when we all agree, right? I mean, green is my favorite color. As long as you all agree with me, we're good. But if you don't agree with me, then we got a problem. So as long as you all will agree with me that green is the best color, then we'll have unity. Is that correct? Well, that's the way we approach it most times. No. Unity is not all of us agreeing together. Unity is all of us together, even when we're not agreeing. And this is the problem. Why does one out of every two marriages fail? Because we think marriage is great as long as we all agree together. But when we stop agreeing together and we can't take it anymore, well, we'll just go find another one. We talked about this today in Bible study, consumerism. Well, when HEB doesn't do to suit me anymore, then I'm going to go to Walmart. When Walmart doesn't go to suit me anymore, then I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll try HEB again, but maybe I'll drive to Round Rock and find another store. I know, I'll go to Randall's. We're called to be in covenant. I mean, my wife agrees with everything that I do. I just don't agree with everything she does. But she doesn't stop being my wife. I'm not going to leave her just because, you know, she gets it wrong sometimes. 
she agrees with me about everything because she submitted to me, right? Mm-hmm. You do know that my tongue was firmly planted in my cheek when I said that, right? Because I'm really afraid of my wife. She wasn't in here the last three weeks, and she's sitting in here now. So, But she listens to the sermon. She, she makes sure she listens to what I preach. I told you guys, pray for me. I hope you all have been. So unity is not everyone agreeing together. It's everyone together in spite of not agreeing. John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples. What? If you have love one for another. 1 John 4, 8, he who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is love. So discipleship is submitting to the unity of the Spirit in peace, not out of fear, but in love. Parents, don't teach your children to obey God and make God someone they're afraid of because God's going to punish them if they don't obey. Parents, raise your children to find their greatest joy and their greatest fulfillment in Christ. That there would be nothing else in this life that would satisfy them more than their relationship with Jesus Christ. But I'm going to tell you what, parents, you'll never do that with your children if they don't see it first in you. Because as much as we want, do what I say, but not what I do, as much as we want that to be the way it is, that is not the way it is. Because we all have learned, not by what people have told us, but what we have observed. And the only way we're going to make disciples is to become disciples ourselves. That doesn't mean we run everybody through a class and they've got it now. That means we're going to have to walk and we're going to have to model what the Scripture declares and who Christ Jesus was and is eternally. Amen? Amen. Discipleship is submitting to the unity of the Spirit in peace, not out of fear, but in love. Let's all stand. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word challenges us, and it should. Not in a bad way, not in an unpleasant way, Father. Correction can be unpleasant for a, for a time, for a moment. But the purpose of correction, the purpose of discipline, the scripture says, ultimately, I believe, is that we would come to the place of our greatest joy. In John 15, Jesus tells His disciples, I speak these things to you that my joy may remain and that your joy may be full. Father, I pray that we would find our greatest joy in you. That Lord, being in covenant with one another in the body of Christ, being the church is not something that we do out of obligation because heaven is better than hell. But Lord, that this would be a lifestyle and something in which Lord, we would find our greatest joy and our greatest fulfillment as we are in relationship with you, Lord Jesus, and as we are in relationship with one another. For we are called the body of Christ, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, and we are called the family of God. 
Father, I pray that we would find our greatest joy in the fellowship of this family, the family of God. That, Lord, we would resist the pressures of our time to compromise. And we would stand firm in the truth. Not not out of hearts of judgment and condemnation, but, Lord, out of hearts of love, speak the truth, even if it provokes, even if it offends, even if it brings correction that may seem unpleasant. Lord, let us all have a love of the truth and an embrace of the truth that would do exactly what you said it would do, Lord Jesus, that we would know the truth and the truth would make us free. We thank you, Father God, for sending your Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming out of your great love. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for abiding in us, for leading us and guiding us and teaching us all things that you would magnify Christ in us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our minds to see him and to know him in a deeper way, that you would truly, Lord Jesus, be glorified in your church, world without end. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.